0: Every week we do a QA and a with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevere, how they innovated, how they built communities and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Chuck Aoki, who is a three-time Paralympic medalist. He is the captain of the wheelchair rugby team headed to the World Championships, I believe, in October. He is also a candidate for Ph.D. in international relations and comparative politics. This is a man who does a lot of things and does a lot of things really well. Chuck, welcome to the podcast.
1: Chris, it is my pleasure to be here and, and to be with a legend like yourself. This is this is quite an honor for me. So you're you're very kind. And um, yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me
0: this is absolutely awesome i have watched you play and watched wheelchair rugby i've watched murder ball which i understand was the thing that hooked you the documentary film that hooked you can you describe what's happening on the court and then also like how how similar this is to rugby you guys are called rugby as well
1: yeah two two great questions uh so the first one you know the the way i always describe wheelchair rugby is it's it's high speed chess it's bumper cars, but it's chess And that when you first see it, you see crashing and the smashing, and tipping over, wheels falling off, people flying everywhere. And that's what kept people's attention right away. And that's what caught my attention right away was, wow, this looks like a lot of fun. You know, I was a you referenced murderable, I was like a 15 year old boy when I saw that movie. And so, of course, I was like, yes, this is what I want to be a part of.
0: I don't know as a 15 year old boy that you should have been allowed to see that
1: movie. Well, there was, there was some back and forth, but the, my mom was like, no, we'll, we'll go do it. We'll go check it out. So we went we and saw it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, was, I saw it and just instantly hooked me. And, and it, like I said, the physicality, the knocking around was fun. But what you really find out more about the sport and what I've really come to love about is I've gotten into it. Is there's actually a ton of strategy that goes into it, you know, in terms of classification, in terms of what we're actually doing on the court, defensive, offensive. There's a ton of strategy that you have to keep in your head while you're getting knocked into and smacked around, which, you know, is really, I think what makes it such an interesting and exciting sport to get to be a part of, um, and a I love it. I can certainly talk more and more about that, but, um, that's really the, the, the quick to is just that it's this physical intense sport. Um, but with a, with an incredible depth of strategy that, you know, I could, I could literally talk about for days about, so maybe we'll, I won't do that tonight, but, um, and then your second question about rugby, we're actually not all that similar to April rugby in a lot of ways. The main Similarly, I always say is that much like in um, able-bodied rugby, we have to carry the ball, and we score. You know, like football, you go in the end zone, you can catch it or something. We have to carry the ball across, which is just like in rugby; they have to carry the ball across. Um, the main reason it's called um, with rugby though is, of course, movie murder. It was called murder ball originally, and very popular name. And but as it became more, you know, official and part of the Paralympics, I think the decisions were said. You know what? We should probably find a different name for this then. <laughs> And then murder ball. We, if we want to be in the Paralympics, we got to call it something else. Um, and so it, um, rugby kind of came with that because the nature of it, the physicality of it, you know, it has that kind of, it has the very much the, all the physicality happens on the court. So off the court, everybody's friends, you have a good time, you have some beers, you know, it, it has that kind of camaraderie to it that I think we get. Because like I said, you, 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 if you want to take something out of your opponent, you get to go do it right there on the court. You don't have to hold back. And so I think it creates a nice, a nice bond among all of us athletes who, some would say are crazy enough to play the sport.
0: I love it. That some some really are crazy enough to play the sport. But it's So quadriplegics or sort of a quadriplegic uh, equivalent, meaning affected in four limbs and, and hands or whatever. Uh, but I mean, some of what I was asking is, and, and you, well, we have to describe a little bit of the chairs too, right? So what, what are the chairs like? Cause I've got this Mad Max vision of version of what they are.
1: I, I always point people to Mad Max is the first, sort of thing It's just this, it's this heavy armored chair. So if you've ever seen, you know, a sports chair, you know, they're larger, they've got kind of rim, they've got, they've got a bumper and such, but the wheelchair rugby chair is basically, I say it's built for combat. It is built to get smacked and to smack back. It's, be, it's meant to hit. And so it's, it's heavily armored. It's got wings that are protect you from other players. Actually, I should mention that there are two, actually two styles of chairs. I think it's really an really interesting element of the game. We have what we call offensive chairs. We have what we call defensive chairs. And so the offensive chairs are used by players who have, you know, we call it more function. So higher, higher ability level, they have some core function, they've got better hand function versus the defensive chairs, which are used by low point players, um, those are people with less function, usually higher spinal cord injuries, um, or really, really severe levels of amputation or something like that, um, or cerebral palsy and such. And so the defensive chairs are designed to stop the offensive chairs, which is another really cool element to it. They've got essentially these little cages on the front that are designed to hook onto the offensive chairs and essentially try to stop you from going anywhere, whether it's on offense or defense. And so there's really a lot of interesting elements that come into play with that, but yeah, the. The, at the core, of the chairs are just little battle machines. They're built to get knocked around. They're built to beat up. They're built to go flying and be able to get right back up. Um, of course, we end up having to replace some pretty frequently at the at the international level. I think I go through a chair every couple of years, which is um, which is it's pretty frequent. But um, they t- they take quite a pounding. They take quite a beating. Um, but that's again, it's just it's why we love it so much. It's so physical. It's so intense.
0: <laughs> and and you're saying some of the defensive players are some of the players with less function. I mean, you, you have some players who have who do not have a significant amount of function. I mean, some of these players who who are sort of teetering on that line of like power chair, manual chair, kind of thing, almost, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what makes wheelchair rugby such an incredible sport is that we have such a wide variety of functional levels that are built into it. You know, I don't know if folks, I'm Chris. I know you're familiar with classification on folks watching ours so much. You know, every Paralympic sport has some way of, you know, leveling the playing field, essentially, and finding ways to assign new values. And wheelchair Rugby um, does that by, yeah, essentially assigning these point values that range from 0.5, which are least functional players to your point, folks who are really close to maybe needing to use a power chest thing, all the way up to 3.5 players who have a lot of functions. Some of them are amputees who actually can walk on um, prosthetics and things like that. And so, you know, we have that really wide range, but it's such a great sport because the, with, the, with the classification system. If you want to play a high-functioning player, that's great. You have to play a lower-functioning player to go with. It. You know, there has to be that balance, which I think is really cool. And, you know, I always – the analogy I use to describe it to folks who maybe don't know about this as much as I say, look, if you've ever – imagine in the NBA, you could have a seven-foot-tall player, but, you, again, you got to have a guy under five-six. And the people who are shorter are always like, oh, that sounds amazing. I would have made the NBA. But it's kind of true, right? It's like if you're going to have this one – person with this physical ability, you have to match it with a different physical ability. And it, it's really, like you said, it's a really cool part. I think it what's amazing is it, it's able to give people who often think they couldn't play a sport activity. It's like, no, you can play the sport. There's a role for you in this sport. And it's like, oh well, I'm not as fast as those guys. you don't have to be as fast as those guys. You just have to be as fast as the people who are like you. You know, and I think that's just a really cool uh, element to the to the sport that makes it so makes it so special and makes it so unique in a lot of ways because it gives this opportunity for people up and down the functional level uh, system who, like I said, maybe think they can't compete in something like lift basketball or, um, you know, I don't know, track and field or something like that.
0: But, but that's the strategy. And what you're saying is it's really a team strategy oh, yeah. where the, the higher point, the, the more functioning athletes are, are looking effectively for like an opening,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but the other, the lower functioning athletes are effectively creating, you know, and in some ways this is what I looked at and why I was asking about how similar is it to rugby where it's sort of like that scrum where there, there is everybody's together and they're kind of locked in together and it's almost puzzle pieces. Everybody's everybody's stuck together and then somebody is able to get out and and get a breakaway or whatever because you have a lot of breakaway points. Yeah. and. And so, so the strategy, is that coming from the coach? Is this something in practice? Is this, we're running play number one, we're running play number seven, uh, you know, 717. Right. How does that work?
1: Yeah. So it really, you know, it starts actually at this whole strategy you're talking about. It really starts at team selection. You know, when our coach is picking the team, you know, we have athletes at all function levels in, our, in the country. And he, when the coach picks the team, he has to down and say, okay, what do we want to have our team? you know we know what the other countries have a lot of a lot of other countries run what we call high low lineups they have lots of high function players and lots of low function players and very few players in the middle we try to actually do a little bit of that but also have what we call a balanced lineup where we have high function player two middle function player and one very low function player and so this is kind of it really I guess it really begins at team selections. Like, what do you want your team to look like you know to your point do you want to have a bunch of big burly guys all in one do you want to have some little guys who are fast with some big guys who are slow you know it's kind of finding that balance um and so it starts at that point and then yeah the strategy evolves beyond that based on what we put on the court you know it's like and it's um sometimes you're we don't we as a team don't really have set plays we more have set strategies like this is how we want our offense to operate we want to run it through this player and if it doesn't work for that player we go to sort of plan b or plan c but We have fewer plays um, in the, in the sort of our, our up and down game, because to your point, right. It's a lot of lock, 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 and then boom, someone gets out. We have, we have ways we'd like to do that. I probably shouldn't divulge too many secrets tonight or anything, Chris, but um, yeah, we we certainly have a strategy for how we want to get those players open. Like you said, because our sport is, is mostly offensive based. You know, I actually compare it in some ways to tennis, like you're expected to score the points. It's actually when you don't score it when it's kind of a problem. So we, um, we really try hard to find ways to maximize our offensive capabilities. And it's a good point about the scrum too. You know, it's like we have our guys who go in there and are just in the muck all game long or just battling through the trenches and have to just kind of scrape and fight their way through for, to make, the make play, people like myself look good. I, I owe quite a bit to my low pointers. I like to say. So.
0: so are you like a quarterback? Are you buying Rolexes for all the, all the guys who are making the scrum
1: there or how does that work? Maybe X's. I don't know if I'm quite, I don't know if my bankrolls quite to the Rolex level, but I, I certainly can get them some waterproof watches sometime. I'd be happy to do that. No, but it's, it's true, though. You know, we, we, we I, I often compare them to offensive line It's Like, I'm, I end up with the ball a lot, and so I do end up doing a lot of the scoring, but it really, it happens because we have a team that functions well. You know, it's a four-on-four it's a four game. I can't, I can't play one-on-four. I can't even play three-on-four. We have to be able to play four on four and and be able to have really good matchups up and down the board it's it's like i said why our our strategy as a team has always been to build really balanced teams and not sort of top heavy teams we want to be able to create mismatches um with these other countries that like i said like to run kind of more uneven lineups we like to have a little more balance in our lineup and try to try to attack that one
0: so you can create more mismatches within the trenches that then allow you to score and, and yeah, scoring. I mean, you're talking about, and we'll get to this. I'll just, I'll just tease it right now, but it was 54 to 49 in the gold medal game in Tokyo against great Britain. So it is, I mean, it's kind of like basketball in that, in that sense where it's like, you come down, you score, you go back, you score, but the defense and trying to, trying to establish that defense, what, what can you do? defensively to to unbalance that that scoring because sometimes it looks like it's relatively easy easy to score because you it's not soccer right it's not zero zero it's not one zero
1: yeah no it's 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 a high scoring game for sure and and we should know we, we score by one point at a time too so it's not like we're racking up six or seven points at a time you're getting it one at a time to get to these 50 margins um, there's a lot of things we try to do defensively. You know, I think the big part of our sport is, like I said, it's the physicality. And so it's finding ways to put the other team's players under pressure, like a lot of pressure, heavy pressure, really selling out on putting guys in bad spots where they can't make passes, where they have trouble. They can't, their backs are turned to things like that. You know, you referenced that everyone in our sport has some type of impairment in all four limbs. And so most people like spinal cord injuries, but other times, like I said, it's amputees. So folks quite literally don't have hands. And so it's, those are often faster, more functional players, but they can't pass as well. So it's like, okay, we're, we might have, we're going to try to put our really big guys on that guy and pressure him. And so that you can't get the pass out or it's a very difficult pass at least. And so the, the, the strategy is, like I said, it's really finding ways to um, to put people in really tough positions to, to, to struggle. And, you know, the result I'll admit, sometimes it looks like, Oh my God, they scored so easily, but Your point, you score a lot anyway. So it's more like can we take advantage of the opportunities um, when they exist to um to to really attack them in moments? And I think the other part of the general sport is that we do a lot of pressing, and so most of the game we say press, press, press. We're in the front court, we're really trying to stop them, but we also have a sort of key area which is similar to basketball, where you sort of you kind of play almost a zone type defense that's right in front of the goal. And we pride ourselves on being really good at that as well. And so we try to have sort of, a, we have a two-layer defense. We press, and then if they, if they get free, we all try to run back so we can have another chance of playing, we call it key defense. Um, and that's something in the U.S. we really try to be really good at and, and uh, be able to force turnovers off of because it's, um, it's, it's a much more contained space, you know, rather than having the whole court to work with.
0: Right. So it's like your goal line defense. And you said run back, but running back you guys are you guys are all in wheelchairs not to confuse anything yeah 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 push back but (laughs) exactly and and i'd imagine that that some of it is as a strategy that you're building throughout the game where it's like okay we're playing them this way but we also know that we can employ this tactic at some point when it's really critical is that how it works
1: yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, we, um, we, we, you know, this isn't like professional NBA or MLB where you're playing, you know, 80 games a year, hundred games a year. We play, we play the top teams twice a year if we're lucky sometimes maybe a little bit more. And so, you know, we watch a lot of film and we try to understand teams' tendencies, but yeah, we try to enter into every game I would say with, you know, we have our top, we have our main strategy, but we have at least two or three things that, you know, first quarter ends. we look at, We come to the huddle and coach is like, all right, this isn't working. Let's switch to this. It's like, okay, let's try this, you know? And then we can always go back to the other strategy, but it's one of these things where since we don't play each other that often, you know, there's big gaps between what you play. So you play a game and it goes one way, you know, we come back and say, okay, our strategy, we like what we did here. We think, and we did, let's say we did really well defensively. We're going to say to ourselves, okay, are they going to change? Are they just going to try to do it better? You know? And so you almost get in your own head a little bit. Like it's the 40 chess. It's like, well, if I move, they don't move. You know, you're, 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 it's a princess bride thing um, where you're just, you're just, you can, you can, you can get too deep into the layer sometimes, but yeah, I think the key is really having, and I think it's true of all sports. It's really having a solid strategy that you believe in kind of irrespective of the team you're playing against. And then you have principles that you try to hold to, like I said, being really aggressive, attacking the ball carriers. And as long as you do that successfully, it's, it's less relevant the teams you play, although you obviously make tweaks depending on what other teams have.
0: Exactly. So you have your general structure Mm -hmm. and then you're kind of going to tweak it out of that. When you see another player, how accurate is your assessment of that other player in terms of like their strengths and their vulnerabilities? Because this is exactly I mean, you have their strengths, their vulnerabilities. You have your strengths, your vulnerabilities, and then you have team strengths, team vulnerabilities for each group.
1: Um, I would say, I think at this point, we, all the top countries really know each other pretty well. Um, you know, I've been on the national team since 2009, so I've been playing for quite a long time. And there have been some athletes who have retired at the top level, but a lot of the people who, I, when I first started, or at least in the, in the, from the first Paralympics I went to, are still around, or uh, most of them are. And there have been a few new players coming, certainly along the way. Uh, but there's a lot of athletes that are very familiar with each other. and So I think we really know each other's strengths pretty well. And, we, and I think, like you said, we know each other's weaknesses pretty well. And so it's really, in a lot of times, it's, it's that progression of what's the next strategy you can come up with to attack them. You know, for example, we came into, you know, beyond being very Frank, we came into Tokyo not thinking we would play Great Britain when it came to the final. We really didn't think that would happen. And so when we ended up against them, it was a little like, oh, this team, like, we didn't realize we'd play this team. You know, they're, they've, they've, they've come on really in the last... Three or four years um, is a real big threat. Obviously, they're both medalists, um, and so we um, we certainly work really hard to kind of come up with with strategies uh, to go against them. But like you said, with individual players, some of these guys have instead of played again for a decade, you know? and so it's it's like what more is there to learn against each other? But as an athlete, I'm always you know I always trying to improve, never never staying still because I think that's so critical uh, to staying on top. You know, if you if you if you get stagnant, that's when somebody catches you and passes you because. You know, I'm 31 now, Chris, I'm getting up there in my career. <laughs> and so it's like I have to I have to try to make sure I can stay relevant, uh, at least through Paris, hopefully.
0: Well, which is interesting that you talk about it as a chess match as well, because you have the you have the physical part. But then you are gaining more and more knowledge and your your vision of the game, I'm sure, is continuing to improve. You talked a little bit about like Great Britain coming in and, and winning the gold medal in Tokyo. You're probably looking more at Australia, who is the previous gold medalist, but they ended up losing in the bronze medal game, right? And ended up fourth place. How much of that cycling do you see? Because you guys have what gone bronze, silver, silver in the last three games, your your last three games. How much of that cycling do you see with the, with the
1: teams? Um, in terms of kind of new teams sort of, coming on the rise and somebody coming
0: on the rise somebody else sort of cycling out is it dependent upon an individual or is it just if if you're the if you're the biggest team yeah and if you're the gold medal team that people are all gunning for you and they base their strategy on you
1: right yeah I think that you know we I would say for the first couple of games my like career we actually didn't see a ton of change which is kind of unfortunate you know I actually thought it wasn't so good for the sport to have Essentially, I think the same three teams were on the podium from 2010 through 20, no, 2016, I'm sorry, 2018, we finally had a new one. And that was it's just not the best thing for the sport to have everything. Obviously, we were successful, so it wasn't like I was upset about it. But, um, you know, in the last four years, we've really seen a dramatic change in, in the in the depth of the sport. Japan was the world champion for 2018, and that was a massive shift for them. They were uh, bronze medals, I think, the year before, and so that was a huge one of them Great Britain came in and was gold medals at the Paralympic Games. And so we haven't seen it as much. You know, kind of the, the US has always been strong, Canada has always been a very strong team, and Australia has been strong, but we're starting to see more European teams come up, which is really fantastic. Um, France has become a very strong team kind of all of a sudden, which is, like I said, it's really good for the sport. Um, but it often is driven by a player. You know, Australia, I would, I would say, had the best player in the world for a very long time. He very much will still be, his name Riley Bat. He may still be the best player in the world. Um, I haven't seen him for a while. But um, their team, unfortunately, came down a little bit in Tokyo. And I think that's what did them in, because he was he was phenomenal. He drove their success um, through both uh, London and Rio, I would say. Yeah.
0: No, that's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to see that team dynamic and how it ends up working out you started though as a basketball player you didn't start it so wheelchair basketball similar kind of thing where you have the camber in the wheels but
1: there are fouls
0: where basketball fouls for you are our hits are just part of the game
1: yeah no um yeah i grew up you know wheelchair basketball was the first really adapted sport i ever played you know i very rare genetic condition that grew up with. And so when I was about six, my mom was like, okay, clearly something's not quite right with you. And so started using, had to start using a wheelchair. And um, that's when we found basketball. Hold on,
0: back up one second. What, what, what exact event brought her to this point that there's, there's something that's not
1: quite right with you? So there, so there were, there were two events that kind of did this, I'll say. So the first one was, I was, um, I was probably four, three or four, a little kid. um, And she came in, the morning to wake me up and my wall was covered in blood and she was just like oh god what's wrong with it and she woke me up and I'm like are you okay and i was like yeah i'm fine mom and she's like what like what happened and it turned out i don't remember this as a kid i want to know what was under my fingernail and so i just pulled i picked it off i like pulled it off as a kid and this is yeah i know i'm sorry to sorry to horrify the audience on a, on a wednesday <laughs> this night is night.
0: one that we all feel yeah
1: y'all feel it i don't feel it um and so that was the first sign, okay, something's not quite, something's very different with this kid. And so they took me to the doctors and kind of figured out that probably had some sort of rare genetic condition. Um, Cause I, I, I quite literally didn't feel it. It didn't hurt. Um, but it wasn't until I was six, I was, and I spent, I was walking most of this time, but um, I walked really slowly and kind of weird. Um, when I was six though, I broke my femur and they didn't actually figure it out until a few weeks after when my leg was like, extremely swollen. I think I had a femur. I can't remember exactly what happened, but essentially it was like, okay, something is very different here. Um, And so, yeah, it it turned out I had broken my femur and I'd been walking on it because I just, I I couldn't feel it. I didn't know it. Um, And so that's what led them to say, okay, something is clearly very different here. And I was taken to uh, the Mayo Clinic. I'm from Minnesota. So luckily we had, you know, a phenomenal hospital like that right down the road from us um, where I was diagnosed with uh, what's called hereditary sensory autonomic neuropathy type two which i expect you to have memorized now chris you're a professional you should have it locked down
0: uh, exactly yes
1: yeah. so essentially i have no sensation from my elbows down and my my, my knees down I, I, I feel absolutely nothing um and that lead led to a lot of injuries when i was younger that i've losing parts of my fingers my legs have been uh, pretty pretty damaged as a result of that um but it led me to wheelchair sports which is what i always say the the silver lining to all this and um so yeah, so I was, as a kid, I was really active. I loved sports. I loved baseball. I love football. Um, but when this, when I you know, was actually getting injured, my parents were like, all right, you know, adapt AB, A-B-Sports really aren't going to work for you, but we're going to find something that is going to work for you. And so we showed up to wheelchair basketball. And, you know, I, I loved wheelchair basketball. I still love playing basketball, just for fun, sometimes for pickup. Um, but it was the first sport I really, I really got into a sports chair and was like, whoa, this is like, this is for real. Like, this is, this is really cool. Um, This is your sports car kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I'll never forget it. And I actually was looking back in your past episode and I saw you had Paul Schulte on. And Paul was the first like Paralympian I ever met. I don't know if I've ever told him this, but I was like, probably 11, 10, 11. I can't remember, but he was my counselor at a wheelchair basketball camp in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And watching him was just like, oh my God, this guy is unbelievable. He's so fast, he can push, he can shoot. It was really uh, my first eye open to like, whoa, there are like, these guys are real athletes, you know, like they're elite, they're incredible, you know, and so it was just, I was always, I was just in awe of it, it was just this cool, and he was such a nice guy, so helpful, so positive, just a great role model, um, and so he, Um, and so like I said, that was my first exposure to Paranormal I was like this is amazing, like I want to, I want to be like these guys, you know, this is, this is awesome, um, it wasn't meant to be in basketball, because I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty quick, I've got good chair skills, pretty fast, solid defender, but I can't shoot to save my life terrible at shooting absolutely horrendous at shooting and apparently in basketball they like you to be good at shooting so rugby 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 eliminated the one thing i was really bad at it's worked out pretty well
0: which is also interesting right because in in basketball you would be on on the less functional side absolutely And, and so you would you would be more of a picker in in basketball like i was yeah you know, Chuck, go, go get in the way, you know, and we're going to free it up for the Paul Schultes oh, yeah. or those kinds of things. You're going to gain some space. Whereas in wheelchair rugby, it's exactly the opposite. You are the Paul Schulte. You are the, you are the speed guy. You're the, I mean, you're, you're living your dream, right? You're, you're catching up to your hero. What's, what was that? What was it that transition that captivated you with rugby or was it the, you know, I, I read something about you being like, you know, the skinny little kid and getting, getting knocked into the bleachers and going oh, yeah. yeah, this is what I'm all about. So was it, was it being more functional or was it getting knocked into the bleachers that, that attracted you or was it both?
1: Uh, you know, it was, it was probably both to a certain extent. I think that, um, I, I love the physicality from the moment I did it. You know, I always tell people that, um, when we have new athletes come, you can tell within about the first two minutes if they're going to like it because the first time they get hit, they're either kind of like back off and a little unsure, which is fine. It's, fine, it's not for everybody. But then there's people who get hit and their eyes light up and they run right back into you. Those are the folks, I was I was in that category of the yes, I'm going to run right back into you. So I love the physicality. The physicality was just just amazing. It was it was like you said it felt freeing. I grew up in Minnesota. I love I love hockey. I love uh, football. You know I like contact sports you know so I I think I really felt free in some ways to just go out and get to get to knock people around um, but you know it, it also is it, it's fun it, it, it was fun being the lead ball handle. it's fun getting to you know do that and you know I think I think the main thing though is my background in basketball really gave me appreciation though for what the low pointers have to do you know like you said I was that guy I was the one who had to be down there and you know, grinding it out, setting picks, just, you know, darting people, getting knocked around, getting dominated. I I think I have an appreciation for that. And I think it's helped me be successful in the sport is that, you know, I really have a good understanding of all the different roles on the court because I've had to play all those lower roles, you know, and then it was like, came to rugby, it was like, all right, here you go, here's the ball. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do this one now, you know. Um, But I do think having that background has been really helpful for me as an athlete, and really brought me, like you said, it gave me just a different perspective on the game, which I think I, I hope has been helpful.
0: It's interesting painting a picture of you, right? Because we're getting we're getting a picture of the guy who who won, you know, who tore his his, his fingernail off, uh, who walked on a on a femur that was broken, and and I actually I broke my femur at one point, and I have a similar pain block and went into the hospital and told the nurse I've broken my femur, and she said. Well, we'll, we'll take some x-rays and we'll look at that. I was like, no, I have a pretty decent idea. Like, and, and it's not because of pain. It was because I could see it. I mean, I didn't have any muscle around it. So I could actually see, I I think this guy's broken. (laughs) And, and she didn't understand. And she came back and she said, your, your femur is broken. I said, yes, I know. I told you that my femur was broken, but having that pain block, it's something that. Yeah. You're not getting that same because if you break your femur it really hurts that's the most weaponable bone yeah. in the body yeah. to break but you so so we have this picture then we have the picture of the guy getting hit and eyes lighting up going yes this is exactly what i want to do yeah. but you're also a phd student like you're, you're you're not some you're not some run into the into the wall head first kind of guy i mean you're you're a smart guy and education is a big part of your family too, right? So, how do you reconcile those those two parts of Chuck Aoki?
1: Well, yeah, it's a it's a good question. I, I ask myself that sometimes. um You know, because literally, I'll have been like, I'll have been like on Sunday, be smacking into people, knocking around, and the next day, I'm just at my laptop, just quietly typing, and, and it's like, this really like, does this happen? Like, it, it, I've, I've had this moment of sort of incongruousness. That's that's a bit odd. Um, I think. At its core, and this will sound a little pretentious, I'm, all, I'm just a very curious person. You know, I all, I've, I've always just loved to learn. I've always loved to read. I've always loved to find out new things. You know, I just I like to learn about the most random things, or, or and then when I find something, I want to learn the most I can about. It. I've just always been a curious person, but I think I've also been a per. I also have never wanted to be defined solely by one thing. Um, and you know, I love rugby, I love playing for Team USA. I love getting to do it. It's one of the greatest honors of my life. It's been amazing. It's been it brought me so many places. But I also know that a time time Father Time is undefeated. So someday I will not be able to compete anymore. And like you said, I just I also want to have other things in my life. You I want to have balance. I want to be able to to do things. You know, I, I the physical side. I love it. I love training. I love working hard. But I also like stretching my brain and having to work having to think through complex problems and solve challenges. And, you know, I, I, I see it as as a responsibility to a certain extent, also to, to know what's going on in the world and kind of be able to contribute in some way. You know, I think that sport can do that in a lot of ways. I think we can be ambassadors of a lot of different things that are important and impactful, but I also think it's important to recognize that there's a whole world outside of sport and that we need to understand what's going on and be informed about and, and really be prepared to, um, to carry on when when the when the when the curtain finally comes down and and uh you know i can't compete anymore so i, I think for me at it, its core like i said I'm, I'm a curious person but it's also just about balance you know it's about having I, I like to have for every person i smack i want i gotta have a i gotta have a not a, a new fact I, want to do you know, I don't know it's just it's all i always like to have diff, a couple of different things going in my in my life
0: so phd candidate at, D- at denver university in international relations and comparative politics what are your conversations like with your
1: teammates uh, at, at, at school or on the rugby team
0: on the rugby team
1: oh, the rugby, yeah um we we talk about all kinds of stuff you know we really do um some of these guys are are my closest friends you know we've been teammates for for the better part of a decade um and so we, we talk rugby of course we talk strategy and it, it's actually really funny to kind of reflect on because when I first was on the team you know this is like I said 10 years ago we're all in our early 20s we're talking about going out and party you know all just this classic you know young guy stuff and now a bunch of them have kids you know I'm getting married this year other guys are getting married so now it's like oh you know what do you think about home, you know home refinancing it's like oh well no you got to do it this way you got to do it that way it's 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 this kind of fun thing to see like oh we, we're growing up we're getting old you know um but you know, at our core, we're sports guys. We talk about sports. We talk, I'm, I'm trying to get everyone in my on the team hooked into F1 because that's my latest obsession is Formula One racing. Okay. Um, but uh, but you know, we we, we just we, we hang out. You know, what, what what's so cool? Why I love being a part of Team Sports uh, is that you know you get so close to people. You spend so much time together. You go through you go through it together. You know, I've been through some of the the toughest. Toughest days in our, my career, you know, were with those guys, you know, and were, it was just awful. Or we we hated it. We're like, this sucks. We lost. We 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 suck. We're the worst player in the world. And you know, when you go through those things and come out on the other side of them, and you're still friends, you're still buddies. It, that, that that's just what's so special to me is getting to share that with with these people who are working as hard as I am, who've gone through the same stuff I am. You know, it's it's a really a really amazing thing to get to be a part of. And you know, like I said, we are we 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 run the gamut, but it. Um, it certainly is. It's, it's something I just like I said, it's, I love it. I love getting to be part of that team.
0: How much does your your Ph.D. side mm-hmm. end up with the rugby players and how much does your rugby side end up with the Ph.D. Uh, candidates?
1: That's a good question. So I would say I've I've had to pick and choose my spots with the rugby team because I, I, I have this tendency to talk a lot. I can go on and on and on. And you notice that. Um, but. You know, I, I, I've learned this with people in my life. They get this look where they kind of glaze over and, you know, they're polite. They don't want to tell me to shut up, but it's like you can tell, like, okay, I've, I've gone too far. I should back up. So I pick and choose my spots. You know, I try to, if people want to talk, guys will ask me questions. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to have me talk about it. But I try to avoid the, hey, did you see this thing? And I can just, like I said, I can see the glaze. come over. It's like, okay, I'll just move on, go to a different world. Um, but it's funny with, with uh, my school, because I, I also did my master's degree while I was on the, on the team. And I remember the first time, you know, I said, Oh yeah, I played with drug and just kind of did nothing about it. And I came back to class the first day after, after Rio. Uh, and the professor looks at me and goes, why didn't you tell me? I was like, why didn't I tell you what? He's like, you're really good. I was like, Oh, I don't know. I said, I was on team USA. He's like, no, 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 but you didn't say you score all the points. I like, well, I don't score all the points. And, you know, it just gives me the, so it's like, I, I try to, you know, I try not to come in and, and, and big time it, but I try to, you know, I just talk about it. And I think that, folks are always really interested in and want to hear about it. it's a it's a very fun thing i get to do and, and it, like you said it's kind of it's kind of incongruous it sometimes feels very different than the world i'm in but i really enjoy getting to straddle those two worlds and and as as cheesy as it might sound i actually have found that i can bring some things i think both worlds are some crossovers like right? there's some interesting things that they come together whether it's you know in the ph program, you have to learn to think really critically i think that's helped my ability to strategize and, and, and be, be thoughtful player. I think that I've had to, I think, like you said, working together is the, is the core of team sports. I think that's really helped me um, work together and find cool and, you know, find good, make good relationships in my program.
0: And understand
1: the roles that different people are playing probably as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, kind of knowing where you, where you finding where you fit into it and sort of fitting into that place and, and being able to operate successfully. Yeah, for sure.
0: It's really interesting. So, the, the, your field of, of PhD, I mean, your your future field, is interesting to me in, in some ways because looking at you've done three games now for three Paralympic Games and then other world championships for the US. Mm-hmm. But you had great grandparents, you're of Japanese descent, you had great grandparents who were in internment camps here in the US. So how, your pride in, in representing your country, how does your pride in your country, how, how do you look at what happened with your grandparents and, and maintain that same sense of, of pride in your country? And did it affect what you're doing?
1: Yeah. I think I I do think that I've always had kind of I've tried to take a worldly view of things. You know, I think the U.S. is a wonderful place to live, but I recommend we're just one, we're one country in this world. You know, we're part of a much bigger globe. Well, and I think you know maybe you can think this as well. I think going to the Paralympics is really what drove that home. It's like whoa, I am part of a small part of a much larger or operation. There's there is so much else going on in this world, and so I think that's that's part of what's driven my study. I I think though to your your initial question about you know how you can kind of represent a country with pride even though it's really been harmful in some ways i think the most patriotic thing you can do for your country is always challenge it to be better you know to be the best thing you can possibly be and so i think that when i agree with things i try i say it i think like i said i think team usa has been wonderful I'm being part of paralympians and including us and i'll think that it has been wonderful but when things need to be called out i'll call it out you know i'll say hey that was this is not cool like you can't do this i remember just uh, when we went to the White House earlier this year, the Washington Post put out a headline, and it said Olympians descend on the White House, and the, the whole story. And if you read the whole, if you read the headline, the story, you wouldn't know Paralympians were even there. You would have had no clue they were even there. And I, I tweeted about. It. I said, Hey, what the hell? This is not cool, you know. And, and to their credit, they changed the headline, um, and it's in there, and it, so you got updated. But you know, it's like, I'm, you know, it's, it's always to me, it's about, you know, this is where I'm from. This is my home. Um, and you know, home is always a very special place, but it's it's also our duty to to push to be better. You know, to to speak up for things you believe in, and to to agitate for the change that you want to see in the world. Um, you know, and I think what I've always found so fascinating about my grandparents is that my, when my, my, you know, my, my great grandparents and my grandfather, my grandfather and grandmother were, were in the internment camps and lots of great uncles and things like that as well. But right after my grandfather was released, he joined the army reserves. Like he, he signed up to, 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 sort of help serve the country that had treated him so poorly. And so I think that's also really you know, notable, unfortunately he passed away so I never had a, when I was quite young, so I never had a chance to ask him about it, but to me, it was really the sign of, you know, a lot of things went into it, I'm sure, but forgiveness, you know, the ability to say, you know what, you treated me poorly, but I still want, it. like, they, they immigrated here, they wanted to live in this country, you know, they wanted to be a part of it, and so the ability to forgive is, is, is a powerful lesson that I've always tried to take from that, is that, you know, things will go wrong, and we should stand up for things that go wrong, but we also have to find ways to move forward in our so we have to find ways to be successful and, and just and to continue to continue to 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 move forward even, even, even when we get sort of treated really unfairly and, and awful.
0: Well it's it's easy to be on the outside looking in too, isn't it? I mean, we're talking we're talking about something that's that's on the racial side here, yeah, but but also on the disability side, to be on the outside looking in is that is that part of what attracts you to sport and attracts you to sport on the highest level?
1: I, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. I think, I think you know, I always say that I identify as a person with disability first and foremost. That's really my biggest identity. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing that is a part of my life. It's something that it, it's, I, I really don't know a life outside of being disabled. You know, like I said, I was very little, but other than that, I don't really identify much outside of that. And so, yeah, I think a big part of why I, I try to be, you know, an active a member and talk about paralympics, all these things is to increase, you know, awareness of disability that people can be successful. Disability is just sort of it's a it's a part of who we all who we are, but it's 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 something that, that you know does not limit you and, and you can really do a lot of incredible successful things. And it's important to talk about that and, and to show that to society to help to improve it, you know, because it's um it's it's certainly something that drives me to to want to be something because You know, like I said, I was 10 or 11 when I met Paul Solteo for the first time. And I'd never, you know, I'd never seen the apparel before. I didn't know anymore. After him, I didn't really know who I could go look for. And, you know, I don't need people to look up to me. They can look up to Tatiana McFadden or Nick Mayhew or uh, I don't Declan Farmer or, you know, uh, Tyler Carter. I, I could go on and on. They don't have to look up to me. You know, they can if they want to. But, you know, it's like all these people elevating all these incredible athletes is something that. I really want to, I really want to do because I, I you know, I think that the ne- I want the next generation of of Paralympic athletes in the United States to be able to say, hey, I, I wanted to be like so-and-so, I want to be like so-and-so. You know, I think that's I think that's just incredible very important.
0: Well, athletes are a small percentage as well, right? The International Paralympic Committee has their we are the 15 right now, which is talking about 15% of the population, 1.2 billion yeah. people in the world with physical disabilities. How much do you share in common with that 15% of the population?
1: You know, it's a good question. I certainly think that I, I have some advantages that they don't have. You know, I, first of all, I live in a, a country that does fairly well, fairly well for people with disabilities. And, you know, we can obviously do a lot better, but I think on the scale that we do fairly well here, you know, I've been a successful athlete, which has helped. And I, and I have a very supportive family and things like that. But at the same time, you know, I, um, I, I, I think that I still can relate a lot to the disability experience. You know, when I go out in public, I'm just another person in a wheelchair. You know, I'm just still kind of having to navigate the same issue when I get to a place and there's a bunch of steps. It's like, well, how do I get in? It? It's like, oh, well, you gotta go around back and go through the go through the kitchen. You know, I, I I certainly feel as though I've got a lot of relations to that and I understand the disability experience. You know, it was only a few years ago I was I was just going to a grocery store and literally just walking to the grocery store, and this guy as I'm walking, kind of is talking to his friend and pointing, he goes, Well, at least I'm not like him, you know. And so it's kind of like, well, all right, first of all, you can only wish to be like me, sir. But like, you know, it's you know, it's still just I still, you know, I think I I still very much know how people with disabilities are viewed by society. And I've I've been viewed that way. You know, people have looked at me and sort of said, Oh, this person can't do this, they can't do that, you know, the infantilization of it that always needs help, the constant things of that. So well, like I said, I certainly think that I have some advantages that other people don't have. I, I try really hard to make sure I understand what everyone goes through. You know, part of my role is I sit on the Athlete Advisory Council for the Olympic Committee and where we really advocate on behalf of athletes. So I try to understand, and people with disabilities really broadly, I try to understand the depth experiences and the amount of things we do and, you know, whether it's, and then, and then going into you know, corporate places and speaking about disability inclusion, how you can do this is something that, like I said, I really try to be on the forefront of because, you know, if I to be the first person they've interacted with disability, I want to leave a good impression and kind of help orient them in, in a positive direction.
0: You, you mentioned a couple of things that were really interesting there. And, and one is, is sort of the accessibility part of it right, is is getting around, just having access. This is an ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act issue, is is having access to places. And I tell people all the time, and you probably say the same thing, I don't encounter much of anything on a daily basis that I can't do. I go to a lot of the same places, probably. Mm -hmm. My house is set up. I don't have too many many issues. But the perception is something that is a little bit different. And you are a guy who's into entirely different worlds where you're in the sport world but then in the education world have you seen perception rear its ugly head in in the academic world
1: you know I have been very lucky that I have not seen it too much however I have several friends in the who have other who have different types of disabilities who have absolutely dealt with it you know whether it's dealing with accommodations and like hey this is something that I need in my life and i saying wow well, do you really need this it's like well yeah I'm not asking for it just for fun you know and so I think one of those one of those real challenges that I'm trying to learn more about is, as a visibly disabled person is what it's like for people with invisible disabilities you know because that's that's a really big challenging topic that you know I think what what helps so to speak for me is when i come into a room it's like oh he's in a wheelchair we got to make sure we have a ramp stairs no reaching. no one really if i'm in a store and i say hey can you reach that for me i've never had anyone go like no get it yourself you know like there's, people are willing to do that but i think there's a lot of folks who have things that don't don't present that way but need need extra help with things and, and they they um they they face a lot of pushback sometimes so um like i said i've been lucky that i think i've, I've, I've had nothing but really accommodating people who have been who've been helpful but um, the perception that you always need help still exists. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I just have help. It's like, yeah, you know what? You can help me get that. I'd I'd be happy to have you carry my plate. That will be fine. Um, You know? And so it's trying to balance that with like, you know, not, not leading to a perception that people always need help. We always need help. And so I try to set really, really good boundaries and also explain to folks. And I talk like, look, what I tell you, what I need is my experience. That is what I need. That's what I'm asking for. You cannot generalize my experience to basically anyone else in this world. You just, you know, you just can't. You know, I think that's what's so tough for people is we want to have easy. We want to have easy. Oh, this person comes in, we do this. The Person like this comes in, we do this. And with disability, it's just not the case. You know, you have to have a really um, bespoke. You know, bespoke is probably too fancy word. You have to have a, but You have to be very flexible. That's why I, I always talk. You have to have a flexible way of dealing with it. Um, and like I said, I've been, I've, 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 I think I've been a good advocate for myself, which I think helps a lot. And I, something, something I encourage other disabled folks to do is to say, look, you know, it's not going to be fair. There's going to be times where people you know, don't want to do this. You have to find a way to advocate for yourself. You know, and it, there's, there's a give and take. It's like you shouldn't have to beg for things you need, but you also have to know how to convey things in a way that can be, that can be effective. I, I think that's really important.
0: Well, this also started for you when you were a young kid. So you might not have had those same skills yeah. as a young kid that you have now. You have you've a lot of experience. How did you evolve in your ability to, to speak for yourself, to represent a greater population, but also to understand what other people were going through when they were asking you a question and might not have the right words for it?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I, I think you're completely right. When I was when I was a kid, I was. I was not the confident person I was now. My, my fiance always tells me, oh, I'm sure you were good in high school. Saying, no, I was I was shy. I don't want to talk to you. I, I was not, I did not develop this confidence. And I think, you know, I really give a lot of the credit to my parents. You know, my mom the brother, would take me to doctor's appointments. And, you know, when I was really young, she wouldn't make me. When I got older, I was like, hey, you know, you need to, you need to be talking. You need to be telling them what you need because they're not gonna, um, they're not just gonna hand it to you, you know? And I also got to see her as a role model, especially when I was doing school accommodation stuff when I was younger, really advocating for me and being able to say, this is what he needs. This is why he needed this is how, how we'd like to do it, you know, and there's push back. So I really, I think her as a role model was extremely helpful for me and sort of understanding um, how to go about that and what, what the ways are to do. And so I, I, you know, I can't be, I cannot thank her enough, but I think the other part is that there was also some, some failings, you know, there were times my, when I started undergrad where I was like, I needed help. And I just was like, "Ah, I'm just not going to ask for it. Oh, whatever. I'm not going to worry about it. And, you know, that led to problems that led to me not doing very well my first couple of semesters. And, you know, I'm relatively smart, but I failed a class. And it was like, that was kind of a wake up call. Like, Hey, like, what are you doing? Like you are better than this, you know? And so I think, you know, it wasn't rock bottom or anything like that, but sometimes that's what you have to go through. You know, you have to kind of get knocked down to be able to realize that you can get up and stand up and keep going or sit up or whatever. (laughs) Um and so I think that that's been something I've really I've, I've worked hard to do and, 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 and it's certainly a skill that I have to practice every day. There are still times today where I, you know I'm entering a situation where I'm like, oh, should I say it? Like, oh, maybe not, you know you get you hesitate you know, because it can be tiring, always advocating for yourself. But I think um, I do think that I am I, I'm good at it, I think I can be, persuasive and forceful and need be. And I think that's something why I've tried to become an advocate to the best of my ability to help people, because I know for some folks it's not a comfortable thing to do. It's not something they they want to do. And you know, if I can be that person to to be able to stand up and say, hey, no, this is not okay. We need to do it this way and be that voice for people, I want to be that. And I, mean, I want to help people who who don't feel that way. And, and then to your um to your sort of final uh question sort of about how you deal with folks who who maybe don't use the right language, don't think about, Say things quite properly is something that I've tried to do in my life, and you can't always apply this. Just to ins- assume good intent, though. You know, I think most people are trying to be good. They're trying to say the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing, and they may mess it up. You know, and so not immediately jumping down someone's throat. How dare you say that? How dare you use that word? It's like, well, hey you know, actually, I, I understand what you're trying to say. That's not really how we talk about it. That's not appropriate. That's not appropriate conversation. And and educating. And I would say. 95% of the time, people are like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Thank you for educating me. And there's no problem, you know, and, I, and then obviously there's times when people get flustered, which is why I think I try to stand up, for I try to be the one to talk because I'm not afraid I won't back down to somebody. But I do think that assuming good intent is really important, especially with something a person hasn't encountered before. You know, if a person has never met a person in a wheelchair before, how can you expect them to just instantly know exactly what they should do and behave? You know, I, I think that's a little unfair to that person um, as well.
0: And and if you come right back at them in a super combative kind of way, they're never going to be able to approach somebody in in a meaningful manner. Exactly. exactly. How for you now, you've got a lot on your plate. I mean, you're an advocate, you're a student, you're an athlete. How are you balance balancing all of this? And especially now, like looking at you've got world championships coming up. I'm assuming you're you're looking at Paris in 2024. How are you balancing all of what you're doing? Because you're going to have to write a thesis. You're going to have to defend your thesis. I, I hope I'm not making you nervous at this point.
1: No, 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 no. Uh, first off, good question. If I knew the exact answer, I would probably write a book about that and sell that, and not worry about the rest. Make of a stuff. lot of money. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think it's, it's always a little bit of trade off sometimes, you know, at first of all, I would say, I don't have a ton of a social life, which is, you know, unfortunate, but it's okay. i have a fiance who's, who's wonderful and she supports me. Um, no, you know, I think what it is for me is it's just, it, it's about prioritizing different things at different times. So there's times where, you know, it's like, you know what, I gotta be just grinding away on this research or this paper, or whatever. I'm just going to grind and I don't lose track of my training. Cause obviously elite athletes, you can't lose track of it. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grind away at these things, and then other times, you know what? This is a little down. I can set this aside, and I can move to this next thing. And so, I think being able to focus and being able being able to comp- compartmentalize a little bit is really helpful because, you know, if I'm sitting there trying to work and all I can think about is how I need to be training, that's not I'm not going to do good work. And if I'm training and you know, all I can think about is oh god, I need to be writing something, that's not going to work either. So being able to sort of Enter in these headspace, and it's something we do competitively. Actually, you know, they talk a lot about when you're on the court, you're in the zone, you know, you're locked in, you know, you go down the hill, you are locked in, right? And so it's like being able to do that. It's like, okay, when I'm on my laptop working, I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing. When I'm out training, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, it's, it's taking, sometimes it means taking an extra five minutes to, to recenter and to, or to totally break, like, you know, playing on my phone for doing a crossword puzzle for 10 minutes like, and just totally checking out whatever, playing video games. Just having those little breaks I think is helpful um, so that when I, when I do focus, I'm able to just lock it in focus. I think that's, I think that's my biggest challenge often is, is really not just bouncing from thing to thing to thing constantly. It's like, no, do this, do this, do this. It's really kind of be able to do it in a, a sequential manner and then, um, like I said, sort of triaging based on what, what is most important on that day
0: which i mean you've hit on a lot of really important things there i mean triaging on on, on what's most important having your priorities down yeah. is something that is that is so important and it's so easy in this world to just be to be following whatever you know your you, an email dings this happens that happens and and losing your focus and and they've talked about how how then you have to come back and refocus. And, and I think we have this bit of a fantasy that you can just bounce from this to this and multitask and do everything and be perfectly fine at it. Yeah. But but it's, it's a skill. It's a skill, this idea of focus and creating that focus. Mm-hmm. Have you always been good at it or did you have to develop skills?
1: I think I... um I think I was always not bad at being able to, when I'm working on something, being able to focus. But when I was younger, I didn't have as much going on. Now that I have more going on, I've had to really, like I said, develop ways of focus on one thing, break, move to the next thing. Um, so it, and it, it's, I'm not perfect at you know, it. I shouldn't sit here and be like, oh, yeah, I've got this figured out. It's easy peasy. It's like, no, I'm, I'm still, I still work on this every day. I still struggle every day. It's like, oh, I didn't really do the work that I should have done, but that's okay. I, I actually, you know, I should say, I think that's the most important part in some ways is being able to be satisfied with what you did on a given day. And even if it wasn't perfect saying that's okay, tomorrow's a new day, I mean, tomorrow's gonna be a, a better day or a good day or whatever. You know, I think I actually think that's a really key skill is is not lingering on what what didn't happen that day or what you should have done that day. Because guess what? When you're in bed at 11 at night, you're not getting up to do six more hours of work. You gotta go to bed, you go to sleep. You know, we have so much research now on how critical sleep is. Um, that you know, it, it's, it's being able to find that. So I think that it's a, it's an ongoing process. It's something that I, I like I said, I hope to, I hope I'm getting better at it. I think and I think I have, but it's something that I don't think I'll be perfect at. You know, it's always just every day is a new a new challenge. But that's kind of what makes it fun. You know, it's it's what what's today? What am I going to do? Work on today? What's going to be the challenge today? What am I going to work through today? And I, I as, a, as a competitive person, I think that helps um, helps my approach it that way too to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, and sometimes the focus is really the the first part of the competition yeah the personal competition it's like i'm doing this i'm doing this i'm doing that i've got to prioritize and then i've got to focus on what i'm doing because those are often for me those are the days that that feel the late the least fulfilling right where i've got all over the place and what did you do and i'm like i don't know i was doing stuff all day long exactly but i don't know what i I really did and you get those endorphins
1: You do.
0: When you are focused. So this is like your workout where you get in and you focus and and you go, oh, okay, that is good. I'm getting paid back. Yeah. For the work that I did. We've got like five minutes left. What do things look like for you moving forward now with world championships? And I did mention Paris. Is Paris something that is a consideration? That's 2024.
1: So, uh, yeah, so the World Championships coming up in October, so just a couple months away. So we're really in that kind of that grind time now where, you know, I think I I always think you can still make a little bit of extra progress in that last little bit. You know, you're not going to make a total transformation of your body, but you can can get those last couple edges and percent. So kind of grinding out the last last few months of training um, for that. And Yeah, I'm hoping to do Paris. That's hope. You gonna
0: say? Well, no, no, and I'm asking about world championships, and I didn't mention something because you were you were really sick. Oh, yeah, going into Tokyo. So yeah. you performed well, but you had infections for what five surgeries on your knee. I yeah. mean, this is this is like you were tortured effectively going into Tokyo.
1: It was it was horrible. I spent, yeah, in in I spent about a month, I spent pretty much the entire month of February of that year in the hospital um just because they couldn't figure out what was going on and it wasn't until march where they finally went in and the the surgeon actually essentially taking my knee out so i basically had no knee when i was competing but it was actually really funny he put in these cement these cement things they're not he was like do you think they'll break no they shouldn't break He was like are you sure i was like this is a sport i play he's like yeah yeah it should be fine and so but yeah so i had no knee It it was horrible but i you know i got healthy in time and just i trained about as hard as i'd ever trained for a few months and was able to get back and and do at least okay which um which worked out well, and then the follow-up to the knee thing, though, is when I went to get my to get it cleaned out and fixed up. He goes, he, I was in when in the surgery, and I woke up, and he came to me. He's like, he's like, yeah, they broke. I had to. Clean. I was like, I it was like, I tried to say. He's like, I didn't think it would break. He's like, I've never seen him break. I was like, well, most people who you do this to are not going out and crashing into people. They're just like you know old old people who are walking around. So it was uh, that was funny but yeah so it was uh it was it was a heck of a it was a heck of a 2021 to start but it, it got a lot better by the end of it thankfully um but it certainly was it was rough for a little while there so yeah but so world championships this year
0: okay. and you'll be healthy
1: yeah and, and i've been healthy for a long time so just knock on wood i'll, I'll keep being healthy um but yes yeah, so we have that and then yeah paris is on is, is the target you know i think it was uh it was, when it, when it came down to it, it was like, it's actually not that much longer. And I think I, think I can stay physically, physically fit to do it. Obviously I have to work hard and you know, we've got a lot of young talent in the, in the, in the country coming up, which is very exciting. Um, but of course it means that I have to keep working hard, which is good, I guess. Um, so yeah, so Paris is the target. And then you know, we're gonna, gonna do Worlds, gonna do Paris, and then we will just, we will see where the world takes us after that.
0: And have you, have you, have you decided on a subject for your thesis?
1: I'm really interested, and I won't nerd out too much. But I'm really interested in, in, in data and how the way the way big data sets affect um, affect the way we perceive the world and how how data kind of has is transforming the way we think about the world and democracy. And so I don't. This is a little. I have to be, get a little more specific than that. But I'm, that's what I'm really interested in. Sort of how this, how these massive data sets were like. You know these. Companies have all this information, and it's like we should have the right to our data. It's like, well, as one person, that doesn't actually mean that much. But when you put fifty million people together, that's worth a lot. And so, how do we kind of balance and reconcile that? Um, how do we balance and reconcile that that challenge? As I think, as we move into this new world where everything is electronic, you know, all this data is available to everybody, and you know. Companies like Google make billions of dollars just by selling targeted ads based on the information they hold about you. I think it's really interesting and something that, like I said, I have to figure out exactly where to settle on. But that—that—that's uh, that, what the topic that fascinates me a lot.
0: It sounds like a great topic. It really does, and something that can give us a greater understanding and and in a variety of different ways, right? Interpreting the data using a you know thirty five thousand foot view or whatever, as opposed to sort of being being down and going, oh, that one thing that means this or this means that or whatever. But also just who's collecting the data, right? I mean, at one point it was like like on 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 some of this like climate stuff and everything. It was like NOAA was one of the one of the places where you're getting the most the most data and are you able to get in and utilize that data and and interpret it because the interpretation is is going to be the really important part so yeah no exactly absolutely fascinating to talk to you thank you so much for for joining us for doing amazing things and continuing to amazing things we'll look forward to uh to seeing you both on the court and uh and you know we'll, we'll, whether we get a chance to read the thesis or not. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a book or. We, we don't want to get too far ahead, but we'll 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 let you we'll let you let us know when things uh, come around.
1: There you go, perfect. Well, Chris, Chris, it's been my absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of a lot of fun to talk to you.
0: It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Chuck, and i look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks to all of you. Really appreciate you tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed it. As we always say, the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. This will be a traditional podcast as well. Look out for it. And if if you do see it, please follow us, please like us, and we'll continue to give you great content. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. Take care.